everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. The head of the World Bank is warning that climate change will lead to violent conflict over shortages of food and water. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel said Monday that rising sea levels and other effects of climate change will pose major challenges for America's military. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to America Adapts, the climate change podcast. I'm your host, Doug Parsons. On today's episode, we have a fantastic guest. It's Dr. Evelyn Geyser from Florida International University, and we're going to be talking about the Everglades and climate change. If you are not a follower, please consider following the podcast on Facebook at America Daps. Or if you have comments or anything you want to just chat about, just email me at americadaps at gmail.com. Stick around and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. This is America Daps, the climate change podcast. I'm Doug Parsons, your host. On today's episode, I have Dr. Evelyn Geyser from Fardic International University. Hi, Evelyn. How are you? Hi, Doug. I'm just great. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. I was introduced to you by a fellow Bulldog alum. So you, you were at UGA. That's correct. Yes, I graduated with my PhD from University of Georgia uh, in 1997 from the Institute of Ecology there. So I just missed you. I was there from 98 to 2000 doing their master's in conservation ecology. So who, who were you working with? Oh, that's wonderful. I was with Barbara Taylor, and um, she was a professor at the Savannah River Ecology Laboratory um, across the border in South Carolina. The Savannah River Ecology Laboratory is situated on the Savannah River site and was one of the primary areas where Eugene Odom, the, the grandfather of mm -hmm. ecology, who I got to know quite well at the Institute of Ecology, had established in about the, well, the 19th 1950s to study long-term changes in this incredible resource that was protected in that Savannah River site region. And so I got to work there and study uh, the ponds and wetlands on that enormous property and really kind of have a little refuge during my PhD and dissertation research studying such an incredibly wild habitat. Well, I never actually got to go over there, but uh, people like Whit Gibbons would come over to Athens and bring all his reptiles and give all the students a show. And so right. I'm, I'm sure you probably saw him all the time. He was quite a character. He was fantastic. When I was in the field, I would run into some um, various and sundry reptiles and have to report on their appearances and behaviors, especially of the cotton mouths that would hang out waiting for me when I would go collecting algae in the little wetlands around the property. So um, there were about 11 faculty there at SREL at the time, and everybody worked really closely together. It was a really wonderful, tight-knit group of faculty and graduate students really intently focused on some very interesting long-term studies of habitat change in that region. So you ended up at FIU and, you know, why I thought you would be such an interesting guest and when, the things that I want to talk about are your work with the Everglades and then some of the work that you're doing in South Florida with adaptation planning. But I was doing my homework. I do my homework on my guest and 
I was trying to figure out, you know, I try to have some angles that, you know, I talk about and I just look at your roles and responsibilities. And quite frankly, it's ridiculous. You're the executive director and, you know, correct me if these have changed, but of the School of Environment, Arts and Society, then you're just a professor there, of course. And there's the Southeast Environmental Research Center. And then one of the things that we're going to talk about is you're the lead principal investigator of the Florida Coastal Everglades Long-Term Ecological Research Program. That is a lot of responsibilities. And what I thought was interesting, you're the ED of the School of Environment, but it, is that kind of an unusual thing to make? I mean, you're mixing like the English program with the School of Environment. Is that what you have set up there? It is a really unusual thing. And, uh, you know, I would just start by saying that it is a number of different titles that I'm, I'm wearing right now, but uh, they're all really tightly related to each other in that uh, the research programs that I help coordinate are necessarily really multidisciplinary, and we have to really work actively to bridge the social sciences and the humanities with the uh, class STEM discipline, science, technology, engineering, and math in a way that helps us understand environmental change and really act to protect and conserve our ecosystems. And so uh, that philosophy extends into our school, and we've deliberately bridged a number of departments that are typically working somewhat in isolation from each other. And so within our school, we have the biological sciences, the earth and environmental sciences, as well as our English department um, that includes a number of faculty working in eco-critical writing and um, who explore ecology through a number of different lenses that are informed by their backgrounds in the classical study of the humanities. And in addition, we do try to bridge with the fine arts in our centers and institutes and the research that we do. We find that we learn quite a bit more about the ecosystems that we study when we try to express their complexity through the arts. And we also find another avenue for communicating the importance of environmental resource protection when we use other tangible forms of interacting with the public, like through the arts. So it's a super exciting mix of disciplines that we get to play with within our school. So do you find that you're reading more literature these days because it's part of your, your role and responsibilities? <laughs> Absolutely. And um, I guess that's something that is such a fun part of being an academic is that you're in an environment where you can continue to always learn new things. And that is very certainly true about my current role in that I'm exposed to so many different disciplines and reading all different kinds of materials that our faculty and graduate students and undergraduates are, are producing. Well, you know, I was going to start off asking you, you know, Hurricane Matthew, that really didn't impact you much. I mean, it's kind of swooped by Miami, but you, you said it sounds like you were fine. Oh, yeah, we were completely fine. We got really lucky and dodged the bullet on this one. Of course, we, we really ran around for a few days preparing. We've got a lot of expensive equipment out in the field and airboats and motorboats that we had to tie down. And at the university, you know, just covering up the microscopes in the lab and everything. And classes were shut down two days. And then the storm ended up veering the other direction a little bit east and spared us. So we really had very little impact or 
Well, that's good news. And my next pivot here is, you know, the Everglades. One of the things I want to chat with you about is the LTER. People who have been listening to this podcast will know I have a bias toward Florida. I'm from Florida. You're my third guest from Florida. So I'm obviously very interested in what's going on there. And so I wanted you to kind of talk about I don't think people get the Everglades. And to be quite honest, I don't think I completely get the Everglades. It's this amazing resource, this beautiful park. And yet it's not something like Yellowstone or Yosemite. It's It has its own subtle beauty. How would you explain what the Everglades are? Everglades is a really complicated ecosystem. And I think that's partly what you're getting at is it's often difficult to describe because it has so many different facets from its sawgrass marshes that we think about as the river of grass to the dotted tree islands that dot the landscape all the way down from the freshwater to the coast to our incredibly rich fringing mangrove forests and everything in between our cypress domes and our hardwood hammocks that are in there and our pine rockland communities. So I think about the Everglades as an incredibly rich mosaic of different kinds of habitats that are supported by the very shallow sloping landscape that makes it very susceptible to the changing pressures of freshwater and marine water delivery. And that interface between the freshwater availability and the marine pressures coming in from the coast is what creates that template upon which this mosaic of community types plays out. Well, it seems like it's one of those parks, too, that it really has that functional value. I mean, a lot of parks are this aesthetic value. People just like to go look at things. But, I mean, the Everglades is this sort of underlying functional value of what it's doing down there. Absolutely. And so the Everglades is the source of fresh water to what we call the Biscayne Aquifer that supports about 70% of Floridians with fresh drinking water and all of the potable water for our agro industry. And that's because the Everglades is sitting on top of a limestone base and limestone is really, really porous. And so as the water flows down through the Everglades, it's flowing very, very slowly, and that gives opportunity for that water, that fresh water to leach down through into the aquifer and rehydrate the areas that are tapped into by our drinking water wells. Now, the Everglades is also providing myriad of support systems for people. It has been a area of deep cultural history because of that dependency of people on the resources that it supplies. And we can think about the incredible fisheries and, of course, the recreational value to the folks that visit Everglades National Park. So it has an incredible economic value to the people of South Florida and uh, the international community that cares about the incredible diversity and interesting organisms that reside there in this world biosphere preserve. Well, not that I wanted you to come on and be a tourist kind of informer, but when I'm asked about the Everglades and how you should visit it, it's kind of a tricky question. You know, there's different spots. The National Park Service has a couple, I think, 
facilities or they, you can you can kayak out. But it's a right. big commitment to kind of visit it in, I think, a really profound way. Because some people drive out, they walk out on the plank and they're like, you know, this is it. And it's obviously has a subtle beauty. I mean, how would you sort of recommend someone visiting the Everglades? Oh, gosh, um, there are so many different ways to get in there and to see all these different kinds of habitats that I mentioned. Each one requires sort of a different approach. The publicly accessible areas are all incredibly wonderful. So, for instance, if you go into the northern end of Everglades National Park into the Shark Valley, you can ride a tram, you can ride a bike, you can get down all the way into the beautiful sawgrass marshes and see incredibly rich assemblage of animals and plants and really get the feel for the expanse of the Everglades because there's an incredible tower that you can climb at the end of that trail that gives you, you know, you go up there and you get this incredible perspective of how huge the Everglades really is. And that's something that could be done in an afternoon. When my family comes to visit, we always go there because it's just, you never know what you're going to see. It's always a fun afternoon. You can go in there at night, too, and do a moonlight tour and see if you can dodge alligators on your <laughs> on your bicycle. I love going into the southern end of Everglades National Park, too. Um, you can drive down the main park road all the way down to Flamingo. And that drive, it's about an hour and a half without stops. But there's so many wonderful choices of places to stop along the way that give you a really nice impression of what is a pine rockland, what is a hardwood hammock, what do our tree islands look like on the inside, what does a mangrove forest look like so you can have all those incredible experiences and at the end you wind up on the shores of florida bay and and you get to look out into the ocean and see dolphins and maybe a flamingo and and so that's a wonderful way of seeing the everglades as well at any time of year because you know you can make your own choices on which stops you want to get out and you know, take a, a look at and when to keep driving. There's a myriad of ways of getting in there. I often also take my family out on one of the airboat concessions up on Tamimi Trail. They're all really, really well, well done tours. And it's always fun to roar around in an airboat and get that you know, again, the sense of grandeur of the Everglades. Well, I think that's the most diverse description. I think the National Park Service wants going to want to borrow this recording because oh. <laughs> you gave it a great sell. You know, one of the most striking ways to see the Everglades, and it's good and it's bad, it's, is you're flying into Miami, and when you go over the, right. the, the border, you when you look down, you can say, all right, there's city. And then there's the Everglades because it's the striking line. It's like a road or whatever barrier. And it's there it is. That's the boundary. So it shows you the development in South Florida. Well, now I want to talk about your role as principal investigator of the LTER. And it would be helpful if you kind of gave some background. So there's these LTERs all over the country. Now there's one in Antarctica and a couple up in Alaska. And the Everglades is one of them. And so briefly describe what these things even are. Sure. In the 1980s, the National Science Foundation in the U.S. realized that there was a real need to establish programs for studying long-term changes in ecosystems that occur 
over time periods that typically can't be captured by the traditional kind of ranting mechanism, which is typically a three to five year duration. So the National Science Foundation established a new program called Long-Term Ecological Research uh, to set up programs that would study the transformations that are occurring in key places, key ecosystems in North America that enables us to unravel the complexity of change in ecosystems that are happening across so many different temporal and spatial scales. And so over the years, this program has grown. It's a, it's a competitive program. So researchers apply when there's opportunity to add new sites in the network. And we write proposals that summarize our approaches to addressing key theoretically motivated questions in ecology that can be addressed in the places that we work. And now there are 25 sites within the long-term ecological research network that do extend into French Polynesia and Antarctica and the Arctic and really represent the breadth of coastal, freshwater, interior, arid, Arctic, Antarctic habitat types that are representative of key habitat types on the planet. And we are studying the kinds of changes that are happening in these ecosystems across common themes. So all of the sites are studying the kinds of changes that are happening in the water, the kinds of changes that are happening in plant and animal communities, what's going on with the soils, and how the changes that we're seeing are driven by long and short-term changes in uh in the, the drivers of ecosystem change. So we can think about the interaction of long-term climate change with the kinds of changes that are pulsing as a result of storms and um, severe droughts or severe wet periods and the kinds of changes that uh, people are having on landscapes and, and our interaction as humans with these sorts of ways in which ecosystems are evolving over time. Well, I don't think the public appreciates the the value of long term research, and I'm you know it's a struggle for scientists to find this funding, so it's a huge commitment. And I guess I'm a bit curious too that how often do you actually? I mean, these things are established, but how often do you have to get funding? Because I imagine that, as you mentioned, these are long term research sites, but there's probably new research that gets funded that it, that comes into your particular program. But sure. is it like, okay, for these long-term studies, we're going to give you X amount and you have to come back every five years? I mean, how does that work? Right. Great question. The LTR programs are currently funded in six-year cycles. So we write a great big proposal for what we're planning to do in the next six years that advances the science that we've been learning about. So we use our long-term research and the discoveries that we've made to 
plan the questions that would be compelling to address in the next six years. And we submit those proposals to the foundation and then they're peer reviewed by an independent committee and we find out about the success of our renewal attempt. And it's a very competitive program, just like all of NSF's funding. It's not a guarantee, and you have to make sure that you have really addressed all of the key processes and um, components of coordinated research that can show that you're going to be able to really impact and transform the ways that we understand the way that ecosystems function. And we have quite a bit of support to do that very well because we are a connected network of sites. So um, the 25 sites all have, you know, some hundred researchers. So we're a very tight knit community of researchers across sites and we try to help each other by learning from the comparative research that we do, as well as learning about different ways that we can construct our programs so that they can be really integrative and really transformative. And that's probably the most exciting part for all of us in the network is that we get to work in these really big collaborative teams and constantly be learning from each other in ways that help our programs be as successful as they can. And the National Science Foundation helps us too by coming down every three years in the midst of each funding cycle with an independent peer team to review how are we doing relative to our plans and provide us feedback on the work that we've been doing relative to what we had proposed. Well, my um, graduate advisor is Kathy Pringle, and she was involved with the Coweta LTER up in North right. Carolina. And I just, I'm, I wasn't involved at all, but I just, the stream of papers that came out of that research that she was doing up there, it's just constant. I mean, it, you know, it funded any number of PhD students over many years. So there's some great science being generated. Absolutely. That brings up a really important point about LTER programs is that um, they are really collaborative. We have scientists from a whole bunch of different disciplines working together at each site, and each site has uh, collaborations that occur across different universities. So here at FIU, our Everglades program has some 30 other institutions that are a part of it. And every one of those collaborators has a couple of graduate students who are also conducting their research in that holistic long-term framework. And so these graduate students get an experience that is unlike any other. They are working in teams from the get-go and they find a great sense of camaraderie and our graduate students that um, the Florida Coastal Everglades LTER really are the gel of our program and that they they are producing those um, volumes of papers and are really helping us drive at the next generation of exciting, innovative ideas to carry our program forward. So that's, that's probably one of the most exciting parts of being a principal investigator of an LTR is being able to work with such an incredible mix of students. You're a scientist and you work with scientists, and so the LTER is there to generate science, but I'm just curious that you, I, I'm sure most of the scientists that you deal with would like that policy decisions, development decisions are informed by science. And I'm just curious is if the LTER, are there examples where, okay, 
a wise decision based on signs that we generated through this this program helped inform a particular decision do you i mean is that do you feel like you get involved with those kind of decisions absolutely it's a primary goal of a lot of the long-term ecological research programs we have a couple of urban lters one is the central arizona phoenix lter program that is focused on the urban environment of Phoenix, Arizona, and the ways in which resource dependencies are changing over time through the decisions that are made, particularly about the use and distribution of water. And so Arizona State has developed an environment in which decision makers can come to the table and actually work very closely with scientists to determine possible futures for the city of Phoenix based on the long-term information that's being made available through the LTER program. And so here in the Florida Coastal Everglades, we think about the Everglades, even though it's this vast wilderness, it is a wilderness that is completely human dominated and that the kinds of changes that we're seeing taking place in the Everglades are driven so much by the decisions that are being made about water delivery and land use change around its boundaries. And in turn, those changes are really affecting the future of Floridians in the ways that I mentioned earlier and the access to clean, fresh water and to fisheries and to the recreational values of the parks. And so we necessarily think about the Everglades as this urban landscape. And in so doing, we've brought in the resource managers from our different agencies into our science program. We call it science co-production. We are creating the platform for our science in a way that has the decision makers at the table from the get-go. And so they are helping us decide what are the key questions that matter to them and that will help them make informed decisions. And then we are able to make sure that the science that we're generating is actively coming into play when those big decisions about uh, different components of the restoration plan are being made. And so we have seen quite a bit of progress in that as a result of what we call transdisciplinary research, where we're really cr- not only crossing disciplinary boundaries, but crossing institutional boundaries from academia to the municipal decision makers to the agency state and federal agency scientists. So, yeah, we're really trying to advance informed decision-making through that type of engagement. Well, I'm sure if you communicate with other LTERs, they look at the sort of the politics and just the minefields that the Everglades has to kind of maneuver through. It. They, you're dealing right. with things that they, they can't even imagine because some of them are just way out in the middle of nowhere. And so you... Exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, we are right in the heart of such a... Um, conflicted uh, setting in that our short-term goals for the development of South Florida and the projections of population growth in our region just do not jive at all with the provisioning of resources to support that growth that are almost entirely generated by the Everglades. And so that does create a milieu of conflict that is it's 
not only really frustrating <laughs> because we wait around as scientists to see large scale ecosystem restoration that we've been really critical in helping plan, but it is also a very interesting milieu because we have these political, we, we've developed a whole cadre of political ecologists who kind of work within that realm of discerning the steps in the political process that either create avenues for effective change or are prohibiting it. And so we've got folks who are, who are studying this process, studying the process of conflict resolution and what are the key agents of change that are necessary to move long-term sustainable planning decisions forward. I think that's a good cue because what this podcast is all about is climate change and adapting to climate change. And so I have some questions related and the, the whole point of, you know, talking about the science, how are we going to inform adaptation planning and such? And then LTER is going to just, I think, be absolutely critical. But pivoting to discussing more specifically some of the climate change impacts that you're going to have to deal with. Sure. And, you know, take your time. I'm not trying to be provocative, but I, I was in Florida. I worked in the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission was involved with workshops. And, you know, we did some future scenarios with sea level rise. And that's the big one in Florida. Right. And Everyone was this sort of drastic sea level rise scenario, and quite frankly, some of those are even conservative now. You you listen to Professor Wanless, I think he's at University of Miami, and talking yes. about with the numbers that he's discussing. And so, I guess my question to you, and I want you to answer this as a scientist, not just like speculating, but will the Everglades be a marine park in a hundred years? Right. Well, we are doing a whole lot of um, ecological modeling to look at those potential futures based on decisions that are made about water, freshwater delivery into the Everglades and potential trajectories of sea level rise. So we take those different scenarios developed by the IPCC and we play out their impact on saltwater encroachment and inundation in the coastal zone against these various possibilities for freshwater rehydration into the Everglades as planned by the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Program. And the place where LTER science comes in most critically there is in defining the processes of biological feedbacks, which can be both positive or negative, and their role, the, the role of biology in creating the future manifestation expressing that balance of fresh and marine water supplies. Let me just give you a couple of examples. So um, we know that as we deliver more fresh water into the system, that we encourage the production of sawgrass and its contribution to the buildup of soils. And we also enable our mangrove trees to continue producing at very high rates. And together, these two ecosystems, the sawgrass marsh where it integrates, where it begins grading into mangrove forest, can continue to accrete or build soil 
at a rate that is comparable to the projected rate of sea level rise. So we have this naturally occurring positive biological feedback that can buffer our ecosystem against rising seas if we deliver enough fresh water into the ecosystem. However, (laughs) if we don't get that freshwater rehydration right and we don't get enough freshwater moving into our estuaries, what we're seeing is really, really scary. And it's not just a rapid inundation of that coastal zone with seawater, but it's an actual loss of soil that reduces elevation. It creates a feedback that enables even greater inundation and greater exposure of the coastal zone to salt water. And that's through a process that we're calling peat collapse. Hmm. Those soils underneath the mangroves and, and the sawgrass marshes where they integrate with them um, is an organic soil that is produced by the, the vegetation and it's a peat soil. And that soil appears to be collapsing really, really rapidly when it's exposed to saltier conditions than it's normally used to. And if that process gets out of control and we do see big patches of peat collapse developing throughout the coastal zone, we really have a situation where we're creating a marine environment in the Everglades even more quickly than our simple bathtub type models would project. So as I'm interpreting that is if the freshwater is still flowing in such a volume that you don't have that terrestrial breakdown, but I guess the big X factor there is as what's been in South Florida for decades is, well, how much water will Miami need and how do you factor that into sort of saying, well, it's going to be impossible for us to deliver this fresh water to the Everglades and those two competing right. interests? That must be part of your model discussions. Oh, absolutely. And we've already moved our well fields as far to the interior as we can. And we have a choice of either desalinizing our water or getting appropriate volumes of water into storage in our aquifer, either below the Everglades, ideally, or in aquifer storage areas to the north of it. And so that is part of the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan. And it's just implementing that plan and moving water to the south and not wasting it. Right now, we are taking incredible volumes of fresh water. You know, we're, we're in a region with a positive water balance where fresh water supply shouldn't be an issue. And, and we see lots of fresh water on our landscape, but, but it's mostly in our canal system, thousands of miles of canals that enable that fresh water to run off the land and, and be shunted into our into our coastal marine systems where it does all kinds of damage. And, and we're seeing that damage right now in our blooms of algae that are occurring in our, in our estuaries. And so the solution to the problem is cleaning our fresh water and getting it into the heart of the Everglades where it rehydrates that aquifer, provides the water for the growing population of Florida, as well as feeds those positive dynamic process, biological processes that help abate the effects of sea level rise. You know, I guess I'd never heard that term before, peat collapse. I mean, I'm familiar with the idea that, you know, you start losing the the, the terrestrial landscape, but the peat Mm -hmm. collapse is a very striking sort of term. And I guess, 
as a way to communicate this to public officials, and you know, a lot of those folks in Miami are getting exposed to this information, but there is that attitude still. It's like, oh, well, why are you wasting that water sending it into the Everglades? And if it's sort of like framed as like, well, we are literally keeping the end of Florida intact, it's a little bit different than just saying, oh, well, we're sending it to the wildlife and the plants. So it just... <laughs> a great of, point. Yeah. yeah. Ways of communicating this, and I'm, I'm sure you probably have those conversations, but uh, yeah, that peak collapse, that's a, that's a new term for me. And yeah, that's a very striking term. Well, question is just a little bit more about the Everglades, and then I want to uh, pivot to some of the adaptation work that you're doing. But you got to meet President Obama at the Everglades. Is that true? I did. Yes, that was one of the most memorable days of my life. Right. Being able to meet the president and hear him so passionately speak about the future of the Everglades and his desire for his children to be able to see it in the same way that he was getting to see it. And, um, oh my gosh, that was such a spectacular <laughs> way to celebrate Earth Day for us. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's coming down and seeing the park that you're focusing on and just the, the president highlighting such a thing. I'm sure that was a thrill. And so you're there. I guess you're on. They do this stage or kind of thing. And so you were there on stage with them. It's, I guess, being a key player in the area. Yeah, well, he came and talked to a crowd of about 50 um, mostly uh, Everglades scientists and researchers. And then a small group of us got to go into a little private room and actually talk with them. Wow. And he asked me about the work that our LTER program is doing. And he said, thank you for providing the kinds of evidence that's necessary for making proper decisions and <laughs> that he would be sure to be talking about that. And, and we went back out and heard his talk and he hit the points right on. It was amazing. And he called out Miami as a place where if we get it right, we can set the global example of how to do climate change adaptation right. And man, we, we were really... <laughs> You know, we we were challenged by our president to, you know, implement solutions that actually provide that global example of sustainability under incredible climate land use pressures. Well, I'm sure it was one of those pinch me moments that you're sitting there standing next to the president. And when, it the, was. when the mic was off, he, he wasn't like, oh, this place is just too full of mosquitoes or anything. He didn't say anything like that, did he? Oh, my gosh. He had his shirt sleeves rolled up and was ready to be out there. Trump and, and the good, 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 good. He just seemed to really, really love it. And he gave his talk um, right in front of a beautiful marsh and it was sort of an ominous day there was a storm that was blowing in you know it was spring and so we were starting our afternoon thunderstorms and you know we saw these great big puffy clouds behind him as he's speaking and i thought you know that that was rather poetic because we are under such a threat in our south florida ecosystem and yet it didn't rain, and I thought our president offered us a glimmer of hope and that if we take action right now through the careful planning and the integration of science into those plans and we actually implement what we've set forward, we can be that example. We, we can still do this and provide that example for others and also that glimmer of hope that you can adapt to these incredibly stressful futures that we're exposed to. 
Well, I'm sure that was a very cool day at work. It was. <laughs> well, I want to end this conversation and talking about some of the work that you're doing with adaptation planning. You know, Miami and South Florida is doing some really innovative things. And so uh, w- what's your involvement? Well, um, we have been through our LTER program working with these different um, agency partners in order to get Everglades restoration done right, which is a major component of the adaptation of South Florida to climate change. In other words, we protect our freshwater resources, our freshwater supply. We protect our inland areas from flooding by having these mangrove marshes continue to be healthy along our shorelines. And uh, in addition to that work in the Everglades, um, focused on healthy adaptation We have been working really closely in the urban environment with our municipalities in developing green infrastructural approaches to adapting really to sea level rise and these high tides that come in and and flood particularly the areas of of Miami Beach and and the beaches during the big king tide events. And and that's happening right now. Today is a a king tide day where the tides come up higher than they do the rest of the year. And that little bit of increment of sea level rise has caused those tides to have a much more far-reaching impact in the interior of the communities of, of the city of Miami Beach. And so we've been working really closely with them. We've brought engineers and scientists and urban planners and folks from our law school and design folks and planners and communication specialists, every discipline practically that's represented here at the university to come together with the really wonderful people at the sustainability office and the city of Miami Beach to to work together toward those solutions. And um, we've just recently established a sea level solution center at Florida International University, which is really geared toward the development of these interdisciplinary solutions toward climate change. And the only way that we're going to be successful with that is by working really, really tightly with the needs of those communities and through their leaders. And that's been a lot of fun. I cannot believe the pressure that we're under to produce those solutions really, really quickly because the effects are already on us. Well, what's the pre- who's the pressure from? Is it from like the cities? I mean, yeah, okay. yeah, it's from the cities um, and from our four county climate compact. We have a really aggressive compact of counties that have come together in a southeast regional climate compact to call attention to the problems that are already occurring as a result of rising seas and to put together a packet of solutions and to advance those solutions through appropriate decision making. And because we're having these extreme flooding events and incredible public visibility and attention to the to the problems we we've been really called upon as a institution that really cares about its communities and has a real commitment to to local communities to really help out and coming up with ways that we can, you know, everything from the rerouting of water through the pump systems on the beach to the creation of new designs for um, buildings and transportation systems to really help these communities come up with ways that we can 
exist into the future where we're so pressured by such an alarming rate of the effects of climate change in our in our local communities. Well, I'll be generous in this, but some partners, and I'm thinking of the state, that aren't as enthusiastic maybe to get involved with some of the climate change issues, does that even matter for what you're doing, or is the state really involved? It's just, you know, you get this perception, especially through the right. media, and do you, I mean, it's South Florida, if people want to understand Florida, it's, it's, it's almost its own state, and so you guys kind of go off and do things on your own, but has the state been an active partner in all this? Well, we work really closely with the South Florida Water Management District okay. scientists. And they are absolutely fantastic and a huge part of our research programs here. And together, we've been doing the climate modeling and the kinds of work that helps us decide the different steps that are necessary in the restoration project for the Everglades. And when it comes to the sorts of adap local adaptation planning that's being designed. Yeah, we're we're studying that interaction between the goal aspects uh, that are involved in decision making <laughs> from the state and local um, governmental ends, and we're finding mostly that the advancing of local adaptation plans can be done within municipal offices, given the appropriate tools for planning. And that it's really at that local level that we can really make significant change if we have willing leaders. And nice answer. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Uh, did you know Bob Glazer from FWC? Does that name ring a bell? Um, yes, I know uh, of him. I, I should put you in touch. He, you know, he's doing some really thing, um, planning with FWC on some you know, species in South Florida. Exactly. And he's, and he's been very active, and I think there's subgroups with the, the four-county compact. And so he, he's just a great guy. He's down. He's based in Marathon. But uh, yep. yeah, I'd love to put you in contact. I'm sure he'd love Please, to interact with you. Great. Definitely. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground. This has been fascinating to me. I'm always learning something new in these podcasts, especially about Florida. I'm from Florida, right. and there's, I'm always learning something new. And so, but we're trying to promote adaptation. It's like stories of hope and inspiration, and we're we're just not sitting back and letting climate change dictate things. But sure. if you have recommendations or just you know, even if like someone in South Florida is like, how can I get involved? You're a scientist, and you're dealing with very structured things. But if there's some ways people can get involved. Or if you don't want to even go there, but just like recommendations for adaptation planners about the value of science or just any final words along those lines. Right. Well, I think for our local citizens, we've given a number of opportunities to get involved in the even the collection of data on the ground. We have a, a wonderful way for folks on the city of Miami Beach to record flooding where they see it and get those that information into our database so that we can understand the distribution of the problem better and work with them to address it. So there's all kinds of cool ways now to become engaged in the generation of knowledge as well as in the development of solutions. There are a number of incredibly effective community organizations in addition to the Southeast Climate Compact. And they meet on a regular basis. The compact has an annual meeting where they bring in the latest information from every source, from the scientists to the political speaker that gives the public a great avenue for learning and for expressing their concerns. And finally, I think the probably the most critical element of sustainability in South Florida is getting clean 
fresh water delivered into the Everglades as soon as possible. And there are wonderful agencies and uh, NGOs that are working really hard to do that. Um, Everglades Foundation is one of them. And so the public can interface with those organizations to help that messaging and to help advance decisions that are made about, about that movement of freshwater in the landscape in a way that is most protective for our future. And so I would just really encourage folks to engage with their local uh, environmental NGOs because they're really trying to do the right thing and and be really at the heart of uh, not only educating the public, but advancing the solutions in appropriate ways. As a university, we've also been reaching out into our school systems and going out into the public and and giving a variety of different lecture series so that the public can remain as informed as possible. And so we have a number of those hosted on our School of Environment, Arts and Society website. And I would encourage folks to just go to our website and, and have a look at the events that are coming up. We try to really make everyone aware of not only the events that we're leading, but those of our really important NGO and agency partners in our communities. Well, fantastic. And so a lot of the things that we talked about today, there's websites, there's resources, and I have show notes for each of my podcasts, and I'm going to put that resources on those. And I'm oh, gonna, if you have any additional resources I think are really useful, I can stick them right on there too. Sure. And yeah, I'd just like to end saying, you know, thank you for what you do. You're just, I think of the expertise that you bring and, you know, Florida is well served by your role, the many roles that you provide. And I hope, you know, your unique role at that school, maybe you get an English major to write that next great climate change novel. You know? Oh, we would love it. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the exciting thing to be able to watch happen. It's so much fun. So thank you so much, Doug. This has been really exciting to be able to talk with you today about this topic. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening in. Until next time, this is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hi, everyone. That's a wrap for this week's episode of America Adapts. Special thanks to Dr. Evelyn Kaiser for coming on and talking about her work down in South Florida. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the show. It's your way of supporting the show. You can go to the website at americadapts.org. There's a PayPal option. It would be much appreciated putting on these shows. It takes a lot of time and effort and just showing your support through um, a donation or subscription. The podcast will continue to be free. They will always be free. But if you want to provide some support, it would be much appreciated. Also consider following the podcast on Facebook. I communicate other topics on Facebook. Other people contribute content. And that's just search for America Adapts on Facebook. And if you want to contact me, I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. But again, all the information is located on my website at americaadapts.org. Please share with your networks. And if you have ideas for guests, again, you can contact me. I'm always hearing from folks and I've gotten some great ideas for guests and we'll keep doing it. But uh, thanks again for listening. Until next week, this is America Adapts, the climate change podcast.